1: Home is your creative canvas, an expression of your unique style. Only Wayfair has everything you need to bring your vision to life. It's the place to shop for everything home, from sofas and beds to dining sets and decor. Wayfair makes it easy with fast and free shipping, even on the big stuff. They'll even help you set it up. So I love getting fresh flowers for our house every week, but usually just put them in mason jars. But with Wayfair, I found and stocked up on some beautiful vases, and I totally upgraded. Every style is welcome in the hood. Visit Wayfair.com or get the Wayfair mobile app. That's W-A-Y-F-A-I-R.com Wayfair. Every style, every home.
0: With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Is your sock drawer looking scary? Maybe it's time for a spring refresh. Bombas just dropped a bunch of absurdly soft new socks, tees, and underwear to help you get that drawer in a better place while doing a little good. Bombas has a one-purchased, one-donated mission. Every time you buy their socks, tees, or underwear, you also donate essential clothing to someone facing homelessness. I can attest that my sock drawer personally is filled with all of Bombas stuff. So get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash crime junkie and use code crime junkie for 20% off your first purchase. That's B O M B A S dot com slash crime junkie and use code crime junkie at checkout. Hi, crime junkies. I'm your host, Ashley Flowers. And I'm Britt. And the story I have for you today is a time capsule. We are going back to New York City in 1986, where one case went from a local homicide to a media firestorm all across America. And though this is far from our first episode, there is a first here. The team over at AMC reached out to us to collaborate on this episode. They asked us to watch their upcoming docuseries called The Preppy Murder in Central Park and use it as our source material to tell you guys about this case. So if you get as enthralled in this story as I did, you can watch the five-part series on AMC and Sundance Channel over three consecutive nights starting Wednesday, November 13th at 9 p.m. Eastern. And I'm telling you, you're going to be so invested because this case horrified and captivated the public while setting off bitter debates about sex, privilege, legal ethics, parental responsibility, socioeconomics, victims' rights, and so much more. Because before there was the O.J. Simpson trial, there was the Preppy murder. Our story begins in the early morning hours of August 26, 1986. A woman named Pat Riley is on her bike riding through Central Park on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. As she's riding along near the Metropolitan Museum of Art, something catches her eye. It looks like a young woman who's laying under a tree. Instantly, Pat knows something is wrong. She can tell just by the way the woman's body is positioned. It doesn't feel right. She's got one leg up, One arm up, and as she gets closer to the woman, she can tell that she isn't moving and all of her jewelry is missing. Horrified, Pat hurries to call police, and by 6 o'clock in the morning, the area is swarming with law enforcement. They cordon off a large area all around the body and instantly start to work on figuring out who their victim is and what happened to her. As they survey her body, they see vicious red marks around her neck and bruises on her face that are so bad one of her eyes has been swollen shut. Her blouse and her bra are pushed up over her breasts, and her skirt has been hiked up to reveal that she isn't wearing any underwear. It's a grim, grim scene, but police react accordingly. They shut down the entrances and exits, not just to the park, but to the entire city, all bridges, all tunnels, everything. By the time morning rush hour is over, the woman in the park is positively identified as 18-year-old Jennifer Levin. McGee Hickey, who was a reporter who actually covered this case in the story, said, quote, if something happens in Central Park to a white person in the 1980s, everybody pays attention to it. And he went on to say that basically back then in the 80s, murder was basically like chalked up to only being related to gangs or crack epidemics. Like bad things happened in bad neighborhoods. And obviously, we all know that bad things happen everywhere to everyone, regardless of race or religion or economic status. But this was kind of the attitude back then. And this murder was rocking the community and especially Jennifer's close-knit community of friends. They'd never known anyone who'd been hurt like this. Stuff like this, again, didn't happen to people like them. They were young and rich and carefree. And youth often carries with it a sense of invincibility. Bad things happen to other people. Death is so far in the distant future and there's no reason to be afraid of it. They were basically all these like private school elite kids of the Upper East Side. And they lived in these glass houses of wealth and privilege and access. Mm -hmm. Now, though Jennifer hung out with this crowd, she wasn't like these other kids in the friend group. She actually grew up in Long Island. She was Jewish. She lived in this downtown Soho apartment area rather than on the Upper East Side where they were. And her friend Peter said, quote, everything that was different about Jennifer is what attracted me to her, end quote. And She's really just like fresh face with her cute little 80s hair and just the sparkle in her eye that is is amazing. Jennifer was popular. She had a lot of friends. And her best friend in 1986 is a girl named Jessica. They met back in 84 when they were both working at a clothing store and they hit it off right away. Now, while they might have had their differences, they did have one big thing in common. They both like to party and like hard. Alcohol is everywhere in this community, and drugs are easy to get. Plus, everyone's parents are away a lot. Like, there's always some nice empty apartment to throw a little weekend rager and then clean up the mess before mom and dad get home.
1: Uh, Wait, where are these kids' parents? You're you're telling me that they just leave their teenagers for days at a time. Yes, yeah, so by themselves.
0: Apparently this was like super common. Like it is f- a far cry from the uber religious Midwest background you and I grew up in. So it's a, uh yeah. Yeah, it's a little hard for me to wrap my head around it, but I guess like these parents would go on vacation or they'd go out to the Hamptons for the weekend or to a country house somewhere and they would just leave their kids behind in the city with no supervision and it's just not a big deal to them. But like I said, Jessica didn't grow up like them. This wasn't her norm, although she did really embrace this after her parents divorced and she moved in with her dad in Soho. Jessica and Peter and her prep school classmates were kind of her getaway into a new scene. All of it's new and cool and like an adult, right? Like it's a oh, very yeah. grown-up thing to have all this freedom and this whole crowd makes the most of their freedom. Now, as police start learning about this friend group, they also start piecing together where she was and who she was with the day before she was found. What they learn is that on August 25th, Jennifer is out in the Hamptons staying with her friend Peter. Now, she's getting ready to leave New York and head to Boston for college, so she's basically, like, making her round. She wants to make sure that she sees everyone before she goes and says her goodbyes. So once she has a chance to see Peter in the Hamptons and see her friends out there, police find out that Jennifer was going back into the city to spend the night at her friend Alex's house. So they go talk to Alex and retrace Jennifer's steps the night that she died. Alex tells police that she and Jennifer went to Dorian's Red Hand Bar. And this is like the place to be. This is the preppy hangout if you're one of the kids in the upper class crew. Everyone knows that it's easy to get served alcohol there. Pretty much all you need to buy a drink is a fake ID. And it doesn't even have to be a good fake ID at that. And they might not even ask for an ID at all. And it isn't just like a Dorian's thing. These kids could party almost anywhere. And we're talking like super exclusive nightclubs, like Studio 54, where there's like money and beautiful people. And again, as I'm watching this, I like, cannot believe that this is like really happening. Yeah. But these kids had access to any place and anything. I mean, they're in these clubs like drinking, smoking marijuana, doing ecstasy, cocaine, pills, you name it.
1: Again, we grew up in a completely different world, so I might just be, like, totally oblivious to this. But this doesn't feel like normal high school partying. Like The kinds of substances you're talking about, they're like some really hard drugs. And the amount that these kids are partying, I feel like there could be, like, some legit substance issues. Oh,
0: listen, and you're not wrong. And even some of the people who were in that crew can see that looking back. Like, Jennifer's best friend Jessica said, quote, we were having a great time, but we were not okay, end quote. So to go back to police, like, piecing together her night, Alex gives a bunch of names to the police about who all was at Dorian's that night, and police go talk to those people to get more names and start building a timeline of who was there, at what times, who left early, who stayed late, who left with who, and as they talk to more and more people, one name keeps coming up over and over and over. Robert Chambers. Robert knew Jennifer because he also knew Jennifer's best friend, Jessica. And Jessica is actually the one who introduced them back on Valentine's Day 1986 at a mutual friend's, quote, champagne birthday party. (laughs) Like, what is their life? Seriously, if this isn't a sign, again, of how rich these kids are or were and how much they party, I don't know what is. So police go over to Robert's mom's apartment to talk to him and get his story about what happened last night. As soon as he comes to the door, they see that he has scratches on his face, like fresh, deep scratches. He also has a weird hand injury, which the lead detective recognizes as being common among boxers who, like, hit wrong. Now, initially, Robert's, like, super polite, super cooperative, and he even volunteers to go to the police station so that they can talk there at the precinct. When they go to the station, they begin their formal taped interview. And police ask Robert about the scratches on his face. And he actually, like, jokes about it and lifts up his shirt to show them matching scratches on his chest. What? And he says that all of these scratches, like, face and chest, are from his cat. And police are like, mm, okay, well... Then let me ask you about a specific friend of yours. When is the last time you saw Jennifer Levin? Now, Robert tells the police that, yes, I was at Dorian's. I saw her there. And the last time, though, that I saw her was, like, right outside of Dorian's. But we said goodbye, kind of went our separate ways, and I didn't see her again. Now, the whole time that they're talking, Robert is uber calm. Like, not nervous like you think he would be sitting in an interrogation room. But... Almost his attitude is, like, kind of mildly annoyed about this whole thing. Like, it's just so inconvenient that he's there. And after a couple of hours, he actually starts to get rude. And basically, like, he's put out by the police disturbing him for something as silly as a murder investigation. And it's then, hours later, among his annoyance, that he starts to change his story. Now, he says, well, I actually left Dorian's with Jennifer. He tells police now that they decided to leave at the same time. They didn't just, like, part ways outside of Dorian's. Now he has them walking together up 86th Street in the direction of Central Park. Now, at this point, the police pump the brakes for a second. Like, it's usually a sign of something big when statements start changing. And they're thinking, okay... We may have our prime suspect in our hands right here right now, which would be great because the media is already all over this thing. So to make sure nothing is missed, they call in the assistant district attorney and they ask Robert if he's willing to make another statement and they want this one recorded. So he's like, yeah, for sure. Let's let's have the tape start rolling. So watching the video, the thing that gets me the most is Robert's whole attitude. Like, I don't know if you've ever watched any of, like, the Brat Pack movies from the 80s, but he's got this very entitled air about him. Mm -hmm. Like, if you've seen Pretty in Pink, he totally reminds me of, like, the James Spader, rich boy attitude, like, consequences are for other people. And even in the second recorded interview, he's still super calm as he starts to tell his story about what happened the night before. Now, according to Robert... He does see her at Dorian's. They do leave at the same time. But this time, they aren't just like walking up the street together. This time, his story is that Jennifer wanted to go into Central Park with him. And he says he wasn't interested in any of it and he just wanted to go home but went with her anyway. And he goes on to tell police and the ADA that she went to the bathroom like somewhere off in the shadows when they got to the park. Then she came back and started putting the moves on him, even tying up his hands behind his back with her own underwear. Because according to him, she says that she thinks he looks cuter if he's tied up. As Robert continues with his story, he tells police that Jennifer then sits on his chest facing away from him, reaches into his pants and sexually assaults him, scratching his chest while she did it. And he says he's in pain. He's scared. He couldn't get away because his hands were tied. And now right away, red flags are going up for the cops in the ADA because they don't buy any of this. Now, a lot of their skepticism came from the idea at the time that they believed men couldn't be raped, which we know is
1: totally false. Right. It can happen to anybody, regardless of gender. But I gotta say, I'm kind of with the police on this one. I'm having a hard time buying the story that he, like, couldn't get away. Was Jennifer, like, super tall or strong? Like... I guess I'm wondering, how was she able to overpower him? So, no, she wasn't,
0: like, super tall or strong. She actually had a pretty slight build when you see pictures of her. Meanwhile, Robert's over six feet tall and nearly 200 pounds. Like, realistically, he'd have no trouble getting a girl of Jennifer's size off of him. And I mean, again, you're not, like, tied up with handcuffs or zip ties, like a single piece of underwear, if that's really what happened. And both the ADA and the police don't think that there's any way she could have done what Robert's saying unless he let her do it. Now, Robert continues with his story and it doesn't become any more believable. According to him, eventually he gets one hand free and manages to toss Jennifer off of him. He says after he pushed her off, then she just doesn't move. And at first he says he thinks that she's just like kidding around. But here's the thing. When he's talking about her to police, like telling them this story, I push her off. He says something really strange. He doesn't use her name he calls her the body, like the body didn't move, which is super strange, but it's also a contradiction. Because if, he, if you thought she was joking around and kidding. Like
1: then she's not just a body.
0: Yeah, she like you wouldn't think she was a dead body. It doesn't make sense. So when police ask him what he did next, no
1: one could have expected his bizarre response. Sometimes it takes a killer to catch a killer. The new season of the hit Paramount Plus original series Criminal Minds Evolution is now streaming. Buried secrets come to light in the new season as the criminal profilers join forces with an unlikely ally to solve a deadly mystery. As conspiracies mount, the team faces their biggest threat yet. Stream the thrilling crime drama Criminal Minds Evolution exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free.
0: It's such a nice perk to have the flexibility to work in all sorts of places. But working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network, which is why you should check out T-Mobile. They're America's largest and fastest 5G network. Plus, they also cover more highway miles with 5G than anyone else. And that's been great for me, especially because these last few months, I've been doing a lot of on the ground reporting with our team from Northern Wisconsin to Utah to the middle of nowhere, Indiana. No matter where I go, I'm able to stream, make calls, or get those case altering DMs from sources, which that's my favorite part. With T-Mobile, you'll be covered in more places with the 5G speed you need for your life on the go. Find out more at tmobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. Fastest based on median overall combined 5G speeds, according to analysis, by Ookla of Speed Test Intelligence Data Q3 2023. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. Robert says he didn't try to do CPR on her. He didn't call the police. He didn't even leave the scene. He says after all of this, he just stayed in the park. Wait, what? Yeah, apparently he just hung out there in Central Park and watched police show up. And he's saying this on tape with nothing in his voice to suggest that he gets how this could sound weird. The police arrest Robert right then and there, and they're feeling really good about it. They've got a prime suspect in custody. He's on tape confessing this is a home run. It seems simple. But we know no case is ever simple. The murder of Jennifer Levin in Central Park is already a media circus, but once Robert's arrested, it gets even worse. It is front-page news all over New York City because it had all the hallmarks of a case that they knew the public would eat up. Young, wealthy, privileged, good-looking kids caught up in drugs and sex and now murder. And the thing that the media latches on the most was the good-looking part. Over and over again, you'd see them talk about how handsome Robert was.
1: What does his appearance have to do with any of this?
0: nothing but the media makes this a huge part of the narrative and I can't tell you how many voiceovers I heard from news reporters that kept going on and on about it and it only gets worse when Robert's mom Phyllis gets him one of the most famous criminal lawyers in New York at the time. It was an attorney named Jack Lippman, and Jack takes zealous advocacy to a whole new level. Like hardcore crime junkies are probably familiar with legal ethics and you'll know that part of a lawyer's responsibility to their client is to promote their client's position, whatever that may be. And they're supposed to do everything they can within the law's boundaries to get the result that they want. And this is exactly what Jack does. Right away, Jack sees the media bonanza around Robert and he sees an opportunity to spin a whole new narrative about what happened the night Jennifer died. He starts a strategic and prolonged public relations campaign to paint Jennifer Levin as a promiscuous sexual deviant and basically paint Robert Chambers as the real victim here. According to Jack's narrative, Robert is this classic all-American success story. Like, he's not from a rich family, but he's working hard to get into society's upper echelons. His mom, Phyllis, is this Irish immigrant who works long hours as a private nurse for New York's most wealthy family so she could send him to, like, the best private schools— he tells the public, you know, he's an altar boy growing up, he's a devout Catholic, he's on sports teams at school, he's handsome, look how handsome he is. And he'd never force himself on anyone and it's only natural for girls to be attracted to him. And I mean, so much is saying basically like girls already throw themselves at him. Why would he like need to force any girl to do anything? Mm-hmm. And he just keeps reiterating like he's a good boy, she was a bad girl. And Jack tells everyone if Jennifer hadn't wanted rough sex, then she'd still be alive and this tragic accident accident never would have happened that is the story that he's pushing out to the public and the phrase rough sex becomes a huge part of this case and it portrays jennifer as the aggressor in this scenario instead of the murder victim that she is and this phrase is everywhere all over the headlines in huge letters and jack Lippman runs with it it's actually appalling like Jennifer's family is devastated her friends are devastated it's basically heaping trauma on top of trauma
1: kind of sounds like they're saying she was asking for it. Oh, Robert's defense team
0: is doing everything but putting it in those exact words. Like, their strategy feeds into the sexism and misogynistic double standards of the time. But it's controversial, too, because a lot of people are just totally disgusted by it. Like, feminist groups end up getting involved, activists start protesting, and it really does split public opinion about Jennifer and about Robert. So while all of this is going on, the police and the new assistant district attorney on the case, Linda Farstein, are trying to come up with a strategy to counterattack Jack's version of Robert. Now, ironically, it's Robert himself who gives them their best weapon against him because on the night that he was arrested, he brought his phone book to the police station with him. And police have all these names and addresses of people he hung out with, friends, associates, all carefully documented in his facts. Linda and the police start making calls and going through every single number in Robert's book. And it's not much of a shock that most of his friends get kind of defensive or they don't want to talk. Like, none of them want to believe that Robert was capable of murder. Like, they just kept saying, oh, you know, it's an accident or Robert would never do that. He must have had a bad moment. Like, excuses, excuses galore. But the calls aren't totally hopeless, though. And little by little, a different picture of Robert emerges – it turns out that Robert had a reputation among the prep school circles because things had a funny habit of going missing when he would be at house parties. Things like fur coats and expensive jewelry would just disappear. Anything valuable that was easy to grab. Robert Chambers was well known for being a thief, but no one had ever confronted him about it because as Jessica says, like it was the glorious 80s and no one wanted to be responsible, was her quote.
1: Okay, but like, Why? Like, is he selling this stuff? Is he, like, does he need it for money? Well, it's because Robert
0: had a cocaine habit, a big one, and it went all the way back to middle school when it started. Linda and the police learned that Robert's been in and out of rehab for years, but it didn't stick, and his addiction continued. And since he needed money to pay for drugs, he turned to stealing. He also stole credit cards from girls that he spent time with, even using one to spend over $3,000 with a friend one weekend in early 86. Now, all of the times this happened, like, again, people knew he was stealing, but the police were never called, and Robert was never held accountable. He went to rehab again, skipped out early, and by August, he was back in New York and back at Dorian's. So by September of 1986, Robert's been in jail since his arrest, waiting for his bail hearing. Jack is still pushing hard on this whole he's a good kid from a good family with no record kind of angle. And Linda and the lead detective, Mike, go the total opposite. They know Robert's not the choir boy that Jack wants everyone to think he is. And they're convinced that they'll be able to keep him in jail until the case goes to trial. But Jack has a secret weapon. Ready for the perfect summer horror thriller? A Quiet Place Day 1, the prequel to the A Quiet Place series, is in theaters June 28th. Experience the day that the deadly creatures came to Earth and followed the story of strangers in New York City forced to negotiate survival in silence. With bigger action sequences and more scares than the first time around, you've got to see it in theaters. Plus, it stars Lupita Nyong'o and Jaiman Unzu, so you know it's going to be epic. Watch A Quiet Place, day one, in theaters June 28th. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. At Robert's bail hearing, Jack pulls out a letter. Now, this isn't totally uncommon. A lot of times suspects will get character references from people to say like, oh, yeah, they're actually super great. They're not a flight risk. Like, I know them. They have ties to the community, things like that. But this isn't a letter from an old teacher or a coach. This letter is from Theodore McCarrick, the Archbishop of Newark. He is a big-time player in the Catholic Church, and he's on track to becoming a cardinal, and he holds a lot of weight in the New York City politics scene. This guy has so much power that even just the name McCarrick instantly puts people, including the judge, on high alert. And Linda is stunned. Of all of the people Jack could have gotten to write a letter, this one was so big and so far out of left field that no one could have ever predicted it. She even drives out to Newark to talk to the Archbishop and asks him why he would possibly write this letter for a man that he's seemingly not connected to. And McCarrick admits, he's like, I don't know anything about the case, but he basically, like, points to his faith as the reason for getting involved.
1: I'm sorry, no. There is no way a power player like that is going to get so personally involved and, like, risk their own career for a defendant in, like, this crazy high profile murder case just because their faith told them to like not unless they knew the person and that's what I
0: said and that's what Linda thought too so she and detective Mike do some digging and it just so happens that the archbishop is also Robert's godfather. And according to New York Magazine, he sponsored Robert through his confirmation as a teenager. Now, Robert's mom, Phyllis, also nursed a cardinal during his last days and knew the New York archdiocese. So she pulled some strings and got good old godfather Teddy to throw his political might behind her son. So It looks like there was a little more behind this than just faith. However... The Archbishop's letter does the trick. In front of a packed courtroom, the judge sets Robert's bail at $150,000, which is a lot of money at the time. And remember, Robert's family isn't like these Upper East Side people. They're not wealthy, so they don't have the $150,000 to spare or even enough to put up for the bail bond. So Robert's supporters and members of the church rally around him and raise the money themselves. Jack Dorian, the guy who actually owns, like, Dorian's red-handed bar where Robert was that night, Jennifer was killed, even puts up his own penthouse as collateral. They get the money, and Robert is released on bail. But instead of going home, he goes to stay at a parish as part of Jack Letman's whole, like, look how pious and innocent this kid is thing. As if the letter from McCarrick wasn't enough, Robert being allowed into the parish puts the whole city on high alert that the Catholic Church has chosen a side as soon as Robert gets out, Jack calls a press conference. Robert reads a statement about how sorry he basically is for this whole tragic accident. Like, he's really piling it all on while still sounding like he did in his confession. Like, he's not even trying to fake empathy at this point. And it's a little hard to watch. And it's even worse for Jennifer's family and her friends because as soon as he's out of jail, Robert wastes no time in getting right back to his normal life. He even goes back to Soho, Jennifer's neighborhood where she lived, strolling around with his Walkman, smirking for the cameras without a care in the world.
1: Okay, so he's popular and he's free again, but like everyone in his friend group knew that he was a thief, right? Yeah, totally. I guess I'm kind of surprised that they weren't more disillusioned with him like earlier on. And I'm shocked that he didn't get caught before this. Well, here's the thing. It
0: goes back to that whole idea of Robert being, like, handsome and not fitting the mold of a criminal that everyone had in their minds because he almost was caught for a burglary that took place back in 85. So... After Robert gets out on bail, Linda gets a call from a detective in another precinct who's investigating this burglary from 1985. Now, during this burglary, over $70,000 worth of stuff was taken from someone's home. So it's actually a felony at this point, not just a misdemeanor. And wouldn't you know it? at the scene they found Robert Chambers' ID on the fire escape. Now at the time when this initially happened they asked Robert about it. They tracked him down and Robert's like oh you know I must have lost it. Oops. What a funny coincidence. A thief must have picked it up and then like dropped it at the crime scene. And listen at the time They bought it. Like, he didn't make sense as their perp. They never fingerprinted him. And they didn't really look at him anymore after that. Like, it really did seem like a strange coincidence. But now that he's been arrested for something else, they decide maybe they should run his prints against their scene. And he might have had an excuse for why his ID was there. But what he can't explain, though, is why his latent fingerprints match those in the medicine cabinet at the apartment where all of this took place. And now when Linda has this, she knows this is huge this isn't jack lippman's pristine client this is a well-established criminal and this is a huge chink in his purity armor now they knew for sure that in order to finance his drug addiction robert wasn't just stealing from people he knew he was stealing from total strangers and what they find out is that he wasn't alone Robert had an associate, a young African-American man named David, who was already well-known to police for raping and trying to murder a student in her dorm room at Columbia University. Yeah, their M.O. was always the same. Robert, being like the white guy who just like fit in in the neighborhoods, used his access and his social standing to get into these really exclusive buildings over Park Avenue. And basically, he'd walk right past the doorman. He'd go upstairs and he'd basically start trying doors until one of them opened just to who left their apartment unlocked. Meanwhile, David, who couldn't get past the doorman like Robert could, would stay down on the ground and wait for Robert to toss him whatever he could pick up. Like I said, that's fur coats, it's pills, it's jewelry.
1: Wait, Jennifer's jewelry was missing, right?
0: Yes, it was. And what was also missing was money from her purse. And so really, I think this was the first time they had some kind of real connection to what the motive might have been. Like, Maybe he was trying to get money from her. Maybe she caught him. Again, there's still kind of a question mark, but clearly we're starting to see a pattern, and there's this, like, underlying issue that he has. Armed with this new information, Linda and Detective Mike start looking into other unsolved burglaries around the city, trying to see if they can pin any more on Robert. And, Yeah. They're able to find over 30 provable crimes that Robert's connected to. And while this is happening, Robert gets formally indicted for felony burglary. Now, of course, as soon as this happened, Robert's lawyer Jack goes into PR spin mode. And this time he gets Robert on the cover of New York Magazine. And not just a feature article, but like the full cover story. He's immaculate, like very clean cut very preppy in his, like, suit and tie, looking like the 1980s American dream, like going for that full John F. Kennedy Jr. vibe. And listen, I read the entire piece, which was published back in November 10th, I think, of 86. It was written by Michael Stone, and it is a puff piece to the nth degree. It is exactly the image the defense wants to portray. Jennifer's best friend Jessica describes it the best, I think. She said, quote, he was portrayed as the white symbol of beauty, power, intelligence, and money. End quote. Wow. Meanwhile, during all of the pretrial stuff, Jack's also busy trying to get a hold of Jennifer's diary because they want to use it as proof that like, oh, hey, remember how we said this girl's like a bad person for being sexually active and daring and enjoying sex with men? Like, they want to use it as proof of that. And they finally get their hands on this diary and they tell the press, aha, like, we've got proof in her own words that she was like, basically sex crazed. But the problem is it's total BS. What they're calling a diary is a freaking date book. And when they give it to the judge to see if it can be admissible in trial, he's like, no, what are you even talking about? There's literally nothing sexual in this thing at all. Right. But I think it was a total play because by this point, it didn't even matter what was in it. It was all a show and the defense knew that there wasn't anything sexual, but they got enough people talking about it in the press and in the public that all of the headlines started to read sex diary right there alongside rough sex as part of the public narrative about Jennifer Levin. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: At this point, Robert's defense isn't even pretending that they're not engaged in victim blaming here. And it kind of backfires on them. The people who were already pissed get even more mad and more are inspired to take action a group called the guardian angels gets really involved in protesting and they accuse jack of basically murdering jennifer's reputation which i think is totally fair especially since one of robert's other lawyers even says in the documentary quote there's nothing illegitimate end quote about using a victim blaming as a tactic like are you
1: kidding me oh my god that's awful
0: yeah what a monster but jennifer isn't the only one being blamed though the night she died robert was confronted at dorian's by a girl named alex and this is a different one that jennifer was supposed to spend the night with but this alex basically humiliated him in front of his friends including jennifer and members of their social group turned to her and basically kind of point the finger saying like you made robert snap and it's your fault that jennifer's dead
1: The lengths these people are willing to go to to shield Robert from his responsibility, it honestly just blows my mind. Like, it sounds like the prosecution is up against this crazy huge wall. Like, not only are they trying to build their case, but they have to fight all of this at the same time. Yeah, they totally are, which is why they kind of had to get creative. And they do. So on the
0: night that she was murdered, Jennifer was wearing a denim jacket. It's really light, kind of acid wash, very 80s. Anyway, so police have this jacket, which happens to have stains on it, stains that look like blood and saliva. And they want to see if they can get those stains to match Jennifer directly with this revolutionary technique the FBI has called DNA testing. Now, this was well before modern DNA analysis. And this is the very, very beginning of this whole science. And at this point, it hadn't been used yet. But basically, the FBI was super excited about this new science they had and about its potential. And they kind of wanted to get some media attention as well. So they agreed to work with the prosecution and kind of partner on this. So Detective Mike takes the jacket and drives it personally all the way from New York City to the FBI's labs down in Quantico while Linda gets to work on establishing a motive. Now, mind you, nowhere in Robert's videotaped confession did he mention anything about why he might have killed Jennifer. And the public wants to know, too. Like, maybe he couldn't perform sexually and was embarrassed. Like, it's totally possible for heavy drug users like Robert because long term cocaine use can have sexual dysfunction effects but then they think like maybe money was the motive like a lot of people speculated that maybe she caught him stealing from her purse like if you remember as soon as they got to the park he says she went off to use the bathroom like maybe she came back and saw him rifling through her purse and they had some kind of confrontation do they need the motive to go to trial so you don't you can go to trial without a motive but it's more of an uphill battle because, like Linda says, it's the thing everybody wants to know. Motive or not, though, the prosecution has to move ahead with the case. Before trial, the preliminary DNA results come back and they say, yes, the blood and saliva on the jacket are Jennifer's. Which, originally, when I like was like watching this and saw that they were trying to do the testing— I thought for a second that they were trying to like link him to her jacket,
1: but then I re- Yeah, that's what I thought you were going to say. No,
0: but then I realized like duh, he like admits being with her. What they were trying to do was prove that the jacket was the murder weapon, that he like held it over her face to try oh, and kill her. Okay. Now having this DNA, and proving that it was hers, proving that it was held to her face is huge for the prosecution because it shows intent and it proves that Jennifer didn't die accidentally like Robert says. But there's a big problem. The judge won't allow it to be admitted into evidence because the DNA science is just too new. Because it can't be allowed into evidence, they also can't even mention it at trial. And the judge also tells them that they can't mention Jennifer's missing jewelry either. So when you look at what we know, what the public knows, but what the jury won't hear about, that means we have no DNA, no murder weapon. No theft that night. Like, there's nothing that we can tell the jury. And beyond that, it's really tricky to sit 12 fair and impartial jurors because of the nonstop media attention that this case got. Mm -hmm. But eventually they manage it, and the trial starts on January 3rd, 1988, with Robert accused of second-degree murder. Right from the start, the media goes bananas, like more than they already have. We're talking worldwide coverage. Now, Linda focuses on humanizing Jennifer as much as possible. So the jury sees her as this vibrant living person and not just the dead girl in Central Park. Jack, on the other hand, keeps doing what he's been doing as far as smearing Jennifer's reputation, except now the case isn't just about rough sex gone wrong. He also brings the police force into it and says that basically they're an amateur level police force who totally ruined the scene and like botched the investigation. All of this is incredibly difficult for Jennifer's friends and family to watch. Some attend court and some of them take the stand even to tell the jury about the girl that they once knew and loved. The woman who found Jennifer's body testifies, the medical examiner testifies, and both sides call expert witnesses who pack in a lot of scientific stuff that's really hard for the average person to understand. And this is done on purpose. Jack does this because he wants not only to confuse the jury, but to also place those little seeds of doubt in their mind. Now, another part of Jack's strategy to make Robert look good involves him showing up to court every day with a pretty new girlfriend named Sean. Like, surely no smart, attractive girl like Sean would go out with Robert if he was this vicious killer that prosecutors claim. So he must be harmless, right? Linda's just hoping against hope to get him on the stand for cross-examination away from Sean, away from Jack, so she can finally crack his facade and show the world who he really is. But unfortunately for the prosecution, Jack never calls Robert to testify. The jury goes to deliberate without ever hearing from Robert himself. One day goes by without a verdict. Then two, then three, then five. No one wants to believe that this case could come back with a hung jury, but it's looking more and more likely and everyone is starting to get really nervous because the stakes are so high here and the longer the jury deliberates, the bigger the chance that they're stuck on something. They're under a huge amount of pressure to deliver a verdict, and even the jurors themselves start to crack with all this tension. Fights are breaking out in the jury room. One of the jurors even fakes a heart attack to get excused. Like, there's no doubt that Robert killed Jennifer Levin. I mean, he admits it, but he says it's an accident. The jury is stuck on his intent. Did he mean to kill her? In the midst of this deliberation, the defense team does something that sends shockwaves through not just New York City, but across the world.
1: Have you ever had a feeling that someone wasn't being fully truthful with you? When you need to do a gut check because you're pretty sure something isn't adding up about someone's past, you should turn to Truthfinder. Whether it's a creepy neighbor or a random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by phone number, address, name, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. If you're on a dating app, you need to be on Truthfinder too. Truthfinder helps you identify potential threats so you can avoid them and protect yourself. Millions of people use Truthfinder to find out about people in their communities. If you've got questions about someone, you need to try Truthfinder. And if you're me, you always have questions about people. Truthfinder has helped me access useful, helpful information about the people I'm in contact with that are all my family, especially my kids. Truthfinder has made it simple to be cautious about the people we surround ourselves with. And the peace of mind it's given me is so incredible. Go to truthfinder.com slash junkie for a special crime junkie offer. That's truthfinder.com slash junkie to access your special offer today.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has already flown by. and There have been so many changes for me at the business that I'm actually really, really proud of. But I am still trying to find a way to prioritize my mental health and my self-care time. So, you know, I have some goals around what I want my work-life balance to look like before the year is up. And I encourage everyone to just kind of pause for a minute. Celebrate your wins, but also think about the adjustments you can make for the rest of the year. Therapy is a really good resource that can help you take stock of your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Crime Junkie today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Crime Junkie. On day nine, Robert's defense makes a call to the prosecutor's office. They suggest a plea deal. Instead of second-degree murder, which requires intent, they offer up manslaughter, which doesn't. After consulting with the Levin family and delivering the heartbreaking news, Linda accepts.
1: Wait, that's it? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, after all that manslaughter? Mm Mm-hmm. Did the jury see the same pictures we did? Like, the horrific bruises on Jennifer's neck and, and how badly she'd been beaten? Like, all that and they can't agree on intent. Like, how do you not see that? I know.
0: And truly, that's exactly how Jennifer's friends and family feel. Like, basically, they've been cheated. Jennifer's mom, Ellen, who only agreed to this deal in order to avoid the trauma of a second trial, was horrified by this. Robert is sentenced to just 5 to 15 years in prison. Oh, my God. Even if he serves the maximum. Is 15 years fair payment for a life? And everyone agrees, absolutely not.
1: Oh, oh my God, no. Like... Does the media at least leave them alone now?
0: For a little while, yeah. The trial's over, the press moves on, until... A popular tabloid journalist gets his hands on a videotape that neither the prosecution nor the defense had any idea existed. It was taken while Robert was out on bail back in 87 before the trial when he was supposedly being this, like, wholesome young man staying at his local parish. And in this video, he's surrounded by four girls in their underwear. And they're all partying, goofing around, having a grand old time. And at one point, Robert picks up this doll and starts, like, talking in this creepy, high-pitched voice while he pretends (gasps) to strangle the doll, only stopping to joke about killing it when the doll's head pops off. It is absolutely disturbing, and there's no universe where this is funny, especially considering, like, the circumstances around it. And while it does do a lot of damage to the public view of Robert, ultimately— At this point, it doesn't matter because the trial is over and Jennifer isn't coming back. Robert winds up serving his entire 15-year sentence because he gets into a lot of trouble in prison. He's released in 2003 and within a year, he's arrested again and this time for drugs. He does 100 days in Rikers Island, and then in 2007, he's arrested for drugs a third time, this time for selling, but he's not alone. He's arrested with a woman named Sean, the same Sean who accompanied him to trial every day and who also appeared in that creepy doll tape. Now, this time, Robert is sentenced to 19 years in prison, which is great. Like, this guy deserves to be away forever, but it's a little bit crazy to me that he goes away longer For this drug charges than he ever did for the murder of Jennifer Levin. Yeah. He's currently incarcerated at the Sullivan Maximum Security Correctional Facility in New York State and is scheduled for release in 2024 when he'll be 58 years old. Now, there's still one final twist, though. Brett, you remember Robert's godfather?
1: Yeah, the archbishop, right?
0: Right. So in 2018, Theodore McCarrick, now Cardinal McCarrick, resigns after being accused of sexually abusing not only adult male seminarians, but also of sexually abusing children in particular altar boys. Now, NBC News did a huge story about his resignation and a lot of other outlets covered it because McCarrick is one of the highest ranking church leaders in the United States to be removed in connection with the Catholic Church's ongoing sexual abuse scandal. Now, if you remember, Robert was an altar boy and also was sponsored by McCarrick for his confirmation as a teenager. Mm -hmm. Now, To be clear, there's never been any suggestion that Robert was among one of McCarrick's victims, but... I kind of think it's a question that has to be asked.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Now, partly because of the media attention and the public fascination with Jennifer Levin's murder, this case has become a staple in pop culture references. People Magazine listed a few of them. There was a movie back in 1989, a 1990 Law & Order episode, a Sonic Youth song. And even as late as 2004, the killers put out Jenny was a friend of mine. I hate to say that any good came of this whole thing because Jennifer should still be alive. None of this should have ever happened. But her mom, Ellen, turned her grief into action. She became a staunch advocate for victims' rights and got 13 pieces of legislation passed in 10 years to protect victims, including expanding New York's rape shield laws to limit how much of a victim's sexual history can be mentioned. She turned her pain into power Mm -hmm. and hopefully in the process allowed Jennifer's memory to rest a little easier. Thank you so much to the team at AMC for reaching out and asking us to cover this case. Their reporting was immensely helpful. And you guys, the docu-series is legit amazing. So make sure you check that out. It's a five-part series that will be airing on AMC and the Sundance Channel over three consecutive nights starting Wednesday, November 13th, 2019 at 9 p.m. Eastern. For a list of other sources we use for cross-referencing and to supplement this story, you can visit our website, CrimeJunkiePodcast.com.
1: And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Crime Junkie Podcast.
0: And if you'd like to hear a lighthearted story about a puppet, stay tuned for our Puppet of the Month segment. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Crime Junkie is an audio Chuck production. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?
1: Okay, Ashley. Today, we're going to be talking about Murphy, who I am super excited about. His mama sent us pictures and... Oh, Murph. I just... Oh, I love it. Murphy Moo is something that she's... Uh We could call him. Um, Disclaimer, when she wrote me, she, had, she disclosed that she did have a couple of glasses of wine when she wrote this, so <laughs> um, she was feeling pretty emotional about Murphy um, as she was writing. Okay, so Rachel had been bugging her now husband, Michael, the entire time they were dating, engaged, newly married, to get a dog. That's all she wanted. The only problem was, Michael is allergic. Oh, no. <laughs> her whole thing was like, I mean, you're fine when you take medicine. <laughs> which I, I don't, I don't falter for that, you know. Not wrong. <laughs> and so he's like, "Well, like, well, let's talk about it. Let's think about it." Was really just dragging his feet. Then one day, he had to go on a work trip to the Dominican Republic. Oh my goodness! And Rachel's sitting at home in South Carolina, and she goes, "I'm going to go to that Facebook page that has puppies on it." Which don't we all? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and her dream dog was a great Pyrenees, which, as you know, are huge white, fluffy dogs that I adore. Uh, They're beautiful. They're like little beautiful clouds of legs. Right. So she decided that, you know, like that's kind of a big dog to start out with. So let's look for something smaller. And she found what are called English Cream Golden Retrievers, which I have never heard of. Have you?
0: Yes. I've seen them also clouds of legs.
1: Yes. So they're like kind of a mini Great Pyrenees while still being like a golden retriever size. I was just gonna say
0: there's nothing mini about them. They're just not monster.
1: <laughs> right. Like they like they're just golden retriever size, not great Pyrenees size. So she Is find- it Pyrenees or Pyrenees? I've heard it both ways. I've
0: said Pyrenees my whole life, and now I'm wondering if I'm saying it wrong. Well now I'm
1: wondering if I'm saying it wrong because I've always said Pyrenees. <laughs> you can leave this in, I don't care. <laughs> Gosh. Don't email us about this, please. So At the time, she goes to this Facebook page and there are two English cream golden retriever puppies left. And so she messages this page and she's like, Tell me a little bit more about Mr. Orange Collar, which was the name of one of the puppies. And they said, You know what? He's the most laid back puppy of the bunch. And right then and there, she was like, Sign me up. She said she loves being active, but she also wants a dog who's down for some cuddles, which Mm. same. Same. She drove four hours one way to pick up Murphy. It was snowing and the roads were terrible, Mm. but she was not going to let the weather get in the way of her getting her pup. And her boyfriend's still in the Dominican Republic. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. She was like, I have to do, she literally says, I have to do this now while he's not here. (laughs) So it was love at first sight. Mr. Orange Collar, now Murphy, was the cutest, smallest, puffiest little ball of white fluff. It was, yeah, love at first sight. Perfect. And she took a picture and sent it to her husband, Michael. And luckily, he was just as excited as she was. Yes. It's been almost two years since they first got Murphy. He brings so much laughter and joy and cuddles into their house. And he has a signature trick, which is what sold me on him being Preppet of the Month this month. Are you ready? Yes, he balances things on his head. Oh! It is so cute. So it kind of started out as a joke. She took off her shoes one day and just like plopped one on his head. Just because what else are you going to do with a dog, you know? And to their complete surprise, Murphy froze, stood stock still, and left the shoe on his head. Aww. And so they started kind of like, expanding it to other things. He has done an egg, a baseball, a strip of bacon, treats. um,
0: (laughs) like Real trickster.
1: Yeah. Anything you can put on his head, he's going to hold it there. And uh, Rachel said that they are trying to work their way up to a glass of red wine on white (gasps) carpet. No, girl. Nothing's... Don't waste the wine. Nothing's worth it. (laughs) Ash, I just sent you a couple pictures of Murphy balancing things (gasps) on his head. And he is truly the goodest boy
0: oh my we're putting these up on the website you guys we have a blog just for our profit stories you have to see mr murph
1: yeah i posing with this like solo cop and this like egg he's the cutest i love him he's also a certified emotional support animal of course he's he traveled is. even flown to five different states and is yeah just the sweetest goodest boy and they're currently in the process of getting him trained to work in hospitals and retirement homes just so they can share Murphy's love with everyone else. And Rachel wanted everyone to know that her husband's allergies are just fine.
0: <laughs> so, lesson to everyone, if you have allergies, sounds like it's a lie.
1: <laughs> and <laughs> so, I want to kiss Murph's tevers. Oh, I, I just oh love gosh. his little teefers. I oh. love all of his fluff, too. <laughs> so, keeping with a big dog theme and West Virginia, I found a dog named Thatcher who is available for adoption at Animal Friends of North Central West Virginia right now. I'm going to send you a picture of him, and he'll be posted on our website, too. This is Thatcher. He is about four or five years old. He's a hound mix and is about 65 or 70 pounds. But don't let that fool you. He is a fun-loving, handsome, really adorable guy who believes he's a small dog. He's Small got dog at heart. I love it. floppy ears are the 2 Oh, and his little cheekers. Mm.
0: I know. Like, leave that little neck fur that falls over their collar. It's my oh. favorite.
1: He loves kids and is great with other dogs. He's kind of big and excited, so cats aren't always the biggest fan of him. But he is looking for a forever family. Uh, you guys, hurry
0: up, because we're, like, three for three. Every time we featured a dog, they have gotten adopted, like, almost right away to the point where we have to, like, put another dog on the site that same Monday. Yeah. <laughs> so, Go check Thatcher out. Go check out Mr. Murph. And give your puppets a kiss for us. If you're looking for the most epic place on Earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then, trek through the thick jungle. Then, climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then, once you get there keep going because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a nissan pathfinder the search is the real adventure available feature intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions always monitor traffic and weather conditions
1: your home is your place of peace it's clean it's welcoming
0: (sighs)